good morning. Today we do celebrate moms and uh, ladies in our lives, and I just want to say uh, how grateful I am to have been blessed with an amazing mom. Uh, really and truly, I hit the jackpot when it came to the uh, mom lottery. And a great part of why I chose to follow Jesus and really serve in His kingdom is directly a result of my mom's influence and example. So I pray really today blessing on all the moms. Uh, but I also want to extend that blessing really to more than just moms today. I want to use this day as a special opportunity for us to look at a very important issue that impacts all of us. Rather than just talk about motherhood today, I want to really explore the topic of womanhood, especially the role that women play in the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to know that I think this is a really vital uh, and important topic for us. So I'm going to ask today that you look at it with kind of open minds and receptive hearts. Uh, a lot of us grew up with different concepts and ideas about this. But I'll start with a question. Does the Bible say men are supposed to be in charge all the time? You may know that there are ch some churches, even denominations, that actually put restrictions on whether women are allowed to lead or teach or serve as elders, etc. A long time ago, there was a preacher named John R. Rice, and he wrote a book called Bobbed Hair, Bossy Wives, and Women Preachers. And in it, he says, and I quote, I have no doubt millions will go to hell because of the unscriptural practice of women preachers. Now, is that really what the Bible teaches? In fact, there's a book of letters written by kids. Some of you may have seen this. Little children are writing to God, and one of them writes, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please try to be fair. <laughs> now, is that the case? Well, I'm going to try in this message to give an overview of what I think is the whole biblical teaching of this subject and explain why we believe as a church that the Bible in general, and Jesus in particular, have been a force to raise the dignity and value and worth of women like none other in the history of our world. Now, we're going to cover a lot of territory, so I'm going to talk fast, and I'm going to ask you to listen fast. But we're going to start in the very first chapter of the Bible. We're told that God created human beings as male and female, two genders. And the big question is, why in the world did God do that? I mean, was it his original plan that one of those genders, men, would be in charge and lead and be over the other gender. Now there's a little phrase, some of you know this, it runs throughout the book of Genesis, especially the first part. It says, God spoke and it was so, and God saw that it was what? Good. But in the second chapter of Genesis we read, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God makes a helper. That was the woman. Now, when I grew up in church, I always had this idea that the helper here meant that when uh, God made the woman, he made her kind of as a, like a junior assistant to the man. I thought the idea was that the man had way too much to do and he couldn't get everything done. So God kind of gave him like a gopher uh, to uh, kind of delegate stuff to, to subdue the earth. Well, the problem with that is the word translated here, the word helper, is used a lot of times in the Old Testament. By far, guess who it refers to most often? God. 
A typical example, this is just one example in the book of Psalms. He says, when we hope uh, in ho- we wait in hope for the Lord, He is our help and our shield. And that's the same word that's used back in Genesis. If that word now is used most often for God, then clearly helper does not mean somebody lower down on the organizational chart. It's important to notice what the helper was provided and helped to do. God does not say, hey, Adam isn't getting his chores done, so I need to give him an employee. God says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In other words, the reason that God made human beings was to experience community. See, this is the thing that God loves more than anything. See, God experiences community in what we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he made human beings with this same capacity, although there are two of them, male and female. They are to know oneness. Now, Adam's... Uh, Adam couldn't experience that community on his own. He couldn't experience it even with the animal kingdom. But when God created the woman, it wasn't to help Adam to get work done, friends. It was to help him experience community. She was Adam's peer. They were equally indispensable. Each was required for the human race to achieve God's goal of community and oneness. Now, this is what gets expressed in the first chapter. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Listen, male and female, he created them. We have a lot of terms and a lot of times that we use he, the masculine pronoun, to describe God. But this scripture clearly points out that God has both of those qualities. In other words, women as well as men bear the image of God. Now, this is a very strange and unusual idea in the ancient world. And then God goes on to define the mission of humanity. Here's what he says. He says, God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it every seed-bearing plant. He goes on to describe other things. And what the text is very careful here to say is that God gives the mandate to rule over the earth, but he gives it to both the man and the woman. There is no hint here of division of responsibilities. He did not say to the man, hey, you have dominion or authority over the woman, but both of you have dominion over the earth. And sometimes people will argue stuff like this. They'll say, well, man was made first and the woman was made second, and it implies that the man is superior to the woman. Now, the problem with this argument is that the order thing can work both ways. You could say, well, God made the animals first, and then God made man Man was an improvement on the animals. And then God said, okay, I'm through warming up. Then I'm going to make the woman, and she's like the ultimate creation. (laughs) And all the women said, (laughs) right. (laughs) The truth is, there is no superiority here. Men and women were equally made in the image of God. They shared dominion over creation. And then in chapter 3, the book of Genesis, comes the fall. And it brings the pronouncement of what's called the curse. And this this caused a lot of loss to creation, things like a loss of innocence. Now work would be frustrating. Now you'll labor by the sweat of your brow. God says now humanity will experience death. And there's this loss of oneness. And it says that now the woman, after the fall and after the curse, he says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now this is amazing. For many, many years in my Christian life, I often heard this taught as if this was God's original plan, where one gender held power over the other. Friends, this was not God's plan from the beginning. 
It's very clear here that it's part of the curse, just as pain in childbirth and just as alienation from labor is part of it. So husbands, do not assume that your wife was created for the purpose of serving you. Let me say that again. Husbands, do not assume your wife was created for the purpose of serving you. There's a marriage enrichment weekend, and one of the teachers was up teaching, and he said to the husband, he said, listen, guys, you ought to know your wife really well, so well that you actually know what her favorite flower is. And one husband leaned over to his wife and said, Betty Crocker, gold medal, isn't it, baby? (laughs) That's a problem, guys, just so you know. (laughs) Because of the relationship between male and female, which was meant to be oneness, instead now we get this power struggle. And it gets filled with pain and it gets filled with blame. Remember, God asked Adam, why did you eat that fruit? Why did you disobey me, Adam? And Adam says, classical man, the woman you put me here with gave me the fruit. In other words, it's not only her fault, God, it's your fault too. Now this is a point of application here. Men and women are not enemies. Women, let there be no doubt this morning about your worth in God's eyes. You were made in God's image. You were made to rule, not to rule over men, and not to be ruled over by men, but to rule and work side by side to develop to its fullest potential this magnificent creation that God has asked us to steward for Him. Now because of the fall, this has been lost and distorted and confused. In fact, you know that God's plan for oneness gave way to things like polygamy. We read about this in Genesis, where one man could collect wives like personal possessions. A wife could be divorced, listen, for putting too much seasoning in his soup, or for talking too loud, or for burning the toast. However, the beauty of God is that even back in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, there are what is called grace notes of women playing surprising roles in the redemptive work of God. For example, God chose women as well as men to be prophets, to speak authoritatively on God's behalf. A lot of people don't even realize this, but in the Old Testament, Miriam is called a prophet. Now, Miriam was the sister to Moses. And in Numbers 12, she's actually called one through whom the Lord spoke. There's another woman by the name of Huldah. In the book of 2 Kings, we're told that Josiah was the king at the time, and Israel was at a crisis point. And they needed spiritual renewal. They needed a word from God. And this is what the scriptures say in 2 Kings. Hilkiah the priest, Ahakam, Akbor, Stephan, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalem. By the way, I just want to say that I've had to look up and try to pronounce a lot of Hebrew words today, so cut me some slack if I get them wrong, all right? I mean, what happened to Bob and Jill and Joe? Now, some people have taken the position that God is opposed to women leading men. In other words, women should not teach and lead men. The difficulty is that, with that is why would the king and the priests go to a woman here for authoritative instruction? Another place in the Old Testament, fourth chapter of Judges. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. In these days, judges were the authority figures in Israel. They exercised leadership that was political and judicial and spiritual. And here's a woman, Deborah, the highest leader in Israel. Now listen, 
Included in Israel, of course, is her husband. So she is leading her husband by example. You have to ask, if God is opposed to women in leadership, why would he do such a thing? It's very interesting. The text does not say, it does not say, now Deborah was chosen as a leader because no man was spiritually mature enough to step up to the plate. (laughs) The text simply says that she was the voice of the people. She was God's leader. Everybody still with me? Good. Then we get to the New Testament, and things really take off here. One of the most striking features of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus is unique among rabbis in his relationship with women. Now, there were, among, of course, rabbis that had a lot of different opinions, a lot of different practices. But women, generally speaking, were very inferior to men or thought to be inferior. In fact, one ancient rabbinic saying was this, it would be better for Torah, that's the book of the law, to be burned than to be taught by a woman. Think about that. A common prayer was, blessed art thou, O God, who did not make me a woman. In fact, many devout rabbis would not even talk to a woman because it was thought that she would be too tempting for him and he wouldn't be able to handle it. There's actually a group of rabbis, and I'm not making this up, who were called bruised and bleeding rabbis. Because if they saw a woman out of their peripheral vision, they would close their eyes to make sure that she walked by and was out of distance so they wouldn't be tempted and lust after her. These guys were forever bumping into trees and falling off curbs, so they called them the bruised and bleeding rabbis. Now against this backdrop, this is what Jesus is dealing with, you can see how revolutionary his attitude was toward women. One day, you remember the story, Jesus' disciples leave him alone a couple hours. He's at a well in Samaria. And when his disciples return, they're surprised to find him talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. Now listen, why were they surprised? Rabbis didn't talk to women. But Jesus wasn't just talking to her. He engaged this woman in maybe the longest single spiritual theological discussion that he ever had with anybody in the New Testament. She actually became his emissary to the entire town and led people to Jesus. This was staggering. There's a woman, you know, in Luke chapter 7, she's called a sinful woman. She unloosed her hair. That was also illegal in Israel. It was thought that men couldn't handle it if women let their hair down. And she did that to anoint Jesus' feet. And he loved her like a sister. He commended her faith. Jesus traveled with women. We're told in Luke's gospel, listen, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. The twelve were with him and also some women, Mary called Magdalene, Joanna the wife of Chusa, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now what we do as men sometimes is we skip right over passages like that. Friends, this was unprecedented in Jesus' day. To have a rabbi traveling not only with a group of men, but a group of women And women are actually the ones to bankroll the mission. They're the breadwinners. They're funding everything. Remember the story in Luke where uh, Jesus is with Mary and Martha, and Mary is in the kitchen busy. She's doing her thing, and uh, she complained to Jesus about Mary, who was sitting at Jesus' feet. And she was listening to what he was saying. And the phrase, to sit at the Lord's feet, is a very important phrase. It's actually like a technical thing. The Apostle Paul uses it in Acts chapter 22 when he talks about sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. 
It's a technical term for being a rabbi's disciple, a student of a rabbi. And this is very important. There's no record of any rabbi before Jesus having a female disciple. In our day, when people read this story, they often kind of think of it like this. They think, well, Mary had that really quiet learning disposition, and Martha, you know, she was an activist, she was a go-getter kind of person. This is not how people in the first century would have read this story, friends. Any reader in the first century story would expect Jesus to agree with Martha. Hey, tell Mary to get busy doing stuff in the kitchen that women are supposed to do. And the starting point of this story is the woman who was commended by Jesus is not the one who played the hostess. She was the one who played the disciple, the one who was sitting at the Lord's feet. This is so important because women continue to play a crucial role in the life of Jesus. When he was crucified, it was a small group of women who followed him all the way to the cross. Remember the women and John. In all four Gospels, we're told that women served as the first witnesses to the ultimate act of Jesus' ministry, his resurrection from the grave. Now people say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's huge because in that day, generally speaking, women were not allowed to serve as witnesses at legal proceedings. For example, if somebody committed murder and it was witnessed by a hundred women but not one single man, very well, very likely, the murderer would go free. This was so profoundly true that when an early Gentile skeptic wanted to discredit the resurrection, this is what he said, and I quote, But who saw this? He's talking about the resurrection. Who saw this resurrection? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. In other words, in pagan circles, they dismissed the account of the resurrection because it was witnessed by women. Now, this is so awesome to me because this is actually one of the really important marks of the historicity of the authenticity of the resurrection. Who in the world would make up a story where women were the eyewitnesses? <laughs> Nobody would make a story up like that, but it happened. Again, a little grace note of God acknowledging, listen, the importance of women. And then we get to the early church, and then it's just a, it just goes crazy. <laughs> Even before the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, we're told the disciples all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit comes in the second chapter of Acts. And Peter refers to it uh, in order to explain what's going on. He talks about a promise from the Old Testament. The Old Testament Joel, a prophet Joel says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And what Peter is saying is there has come a time now, a spirit-inspired prophetic ministry that would include both men and women without regard to gender. How does it happen? By the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of the Holy Spirit. And this gets reflected in the lives of the early church in some really wonderful ways. There's a great little passage in Acts chapter 21. Philip is an evangelist. He has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Imagine that family, guys, for a minute. And some people say, well, yeah, yeah, women, you know, they could prophesy, but they couldn't really, like, authoritatively teach. Like, prophecy was a lesser function. But Paul, on the other hand, describes prophecy. He says, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. 
In Acts chapter 18, the writer mentions a very important couple. Some of you remember this couple. Paul is sailing for Syria. He's accompanied, listen now, by Priscilla and Aquila. Now this is great. The order of names is very significant in Greek literature. For instance, before Paul became the leader of the mission in the book of Acts, Paul's name was listed last. But after he became the leader, his name is mentioned first, like it always will say now Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas. In that world, of course, husbands sometimes, uh, their names were almost virtually every time mentioned first because they were thought to have higher status. But now, from verse 18, Acts chapter 18 on, here in Acts, Priscilla, the wife, is consistently mentioned first. And this couple will even take in a guy by the name of Paulus who was described as being well-versed in Scripture, but he is receiving here authoritative instruction from, guess who? A woman. And nothing in this text suggests she was doing it under the authority of her husband. In fact, if anything, her husband was doing it under her leadership. Paul endorses another woman leader in the book of Romans. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sicriae. I ask you to receive her in the Lord and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, this is some extraordinary stuff, folks. This is the standard introduction for someone bearing a letter. She would be carrying it, and the custom of that day is she would actually read it to the congregation. Now, remember, in that day, most people were illiterate. A large number of people could not read or write. And that person who was reading would be called to explain anything that was not clear to the congregation. Now, has anybody here ever read the book of Romans? Imagine being the person expected to answer, hey, what did Paul mean by that? Evidently, he had great confidence in Phoebe. She's called um, a diakonos. There's a Greek word for deacon. Words are either usually in the Greek masculine or feminine, sometimes neutral. Diakonos is a masculine form of the word for deacon. It doesn't mean deaconess, although it sometimes gets translated that way. It really can mean a servant. But when Paul uses it for a specific person, as he does here, he does so as a minister of the gospel. It's an office. A couple of verses later, Paul comes back. He says, greet Andronicus and Junia. They're outstanding among the apostles and were in Christ. Listen, before I was, before I followed Jesus, they were here. Now, Junia is a female name. A name of a woman. And I think the clear meaning here is that these two individuals are counted as apostles. Now, let me tell you how much has bothered some translators, and I'm going to guess that they were men. It bothered some translators so much that they actually changed the spelling to Junius, which is a masculine ending. <laughs> but in the best text, that's not the case. There was a woman who was called an apostle. So here's the deal. Starting in the Old Testament and really deeply with Jesus and the New Testament church, this amazing elevation of women is happening in God's community. It's amazing. Now, I do want to mention that there are some texts in the Bible that pose a lot of difficulty for some people in allowing women full participation in the life and the work of the church. We're going to look at just one of them. 
It's in the 11th chapter of Paul's letter, and I appreciate you staying with me because I know I'm slogging through a lot of stuff here. Paul writes this. He says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her, have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but women, or a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not, uh, a woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For, a woman. for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Now, that's a long passage, but a lot about what this passage is talking about certainly is in a relational situation. We don't live in that situation, I realize. But I want to make a couple of key observations. First, Paul here in this passage is affirming the public ministry of women. Paul is basically saying women must pray and prophesy. That is, deliver God's message to the congregation. Now, some people argue that they should only do this for other women. In other words, you've probably heard this, just let women teach women. But it's clear from this context, from veils and so on, Paul is talking about a congregation that have men and women together in the same congregation. This seems to be the most clear teaching. Now this is a whole new dimension. It's a radical departure. Many of you know this, that women were not even counted in trying to form a synagogue, if you had to have a synagogue or putting a synagogue together, you had to have at least 10 people there. And those 10 people had to be men. So this is a new day that has dawned. Also, there's a big debate about the meaning of the term head in the New Testament. There's a Greek word for head, kephal, uh, kephal. We get words like uh, electroencephalogram from that word in our day. And we often think of the head as a symbol of like somebody being boss or in charge, like the head of the company. And it turns out that there's actually debate about this, that this word is actually used to not mean boss really, but it's used more like the headwaters of a river. Now if this was the case, Paul was saying that in his incarnation, Christ came from God. Adam was created by Christ, and woman came from the body of the man. But ultimately, I don't think it really matters how you define head, and here's why. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Slaves, obey your masters unto the Lord. And Paul is not endorsing the system of slaves and masters here. And it took Christians a long time to kind of set this one out and to kind of sort it out. What he's acknowledging is that in the ancient world, this is the way things were. But as people looked at the whole scope of Scripture... The idea that every human being bears the image of God, it became clearly, became clear. It was mostly Christ followers who said, listen, slavery, especially racist slavery, has to go. That is not God's will for humanity. What I think is happening in a similar way is Paul is saying that I'm acknowledging a cultural reality. 
We live in a society where husbands are over wives, just as masters were over slaves, without saying in either case that the social system that we have is the best expression of God's will. And if you keep going through the passage in verse 7, Paul says, the woman is the glory or reflection of man. And some people say, well, doesn't that mean that women are lower than men? Not necessarily. Because this same expression gets used in the Old Testament to say that Saul, King Saul, is the glory of Israel. It was actually an honor, a kind of a, uh, an exaltation. Similarly, when it says in verse 8 and 9, for the sake of man, it doesn't mean lower status. It's the same word or same kind of word as helper in Genesis. And what Paul's ultimate point is, and this is important, is that the interdependence of men and women is getting expressed in a public way now. Men and women depend on each other. They're made for each other. Now another thing, and we'll kind of wrap up here, is what in the world is up with all this veil talk? And the shortest answer here is that in that day they faced a cultural situation that does not exist in our day. Let me give you a little example, background. In Corinth, where this letter was written, or to who it was written, there's a patron saint there who was named Aphrodite. She was the Greek goddess of love, some of you know that. And temple prostitution was part of the history of that city in Corinth. And having an unveiled head was apparently one of the ways that prostitutes were identified. Most likely these instructions about veils and head coverings come from Paul's desire that Christian worship will be sharply distinguished from the promiscuity associated with temple worship or temple prostitution in Corinth. It does not mean women should always wear head coverings in our day in our churches, friends. Paul is writing for a particular culture, and it's always important in the Bible. You've heard me say this before. Ask yourself, what's the cultural context being addressed? And veils are reminders that women have dignity, that women ought to be treated with respect, that their contributions are now valuable to God. And if anything, it was actually saying this is a sign of authority that women should prophesy and pray. One other thing about this passage. There's often a problem with translation when we come to Scripture. Many of you know translators uh, use sometimes a paraphrase. A paraphrase in the Bible is where it's not translated from the original language, like from Hebrew or Greek. But rather it gets paraphrased from another English version. And what happens is sometimes people who are paraphrasing make their own interpretation and their own biases can influence their point of view. I'm going to give you a classic example of this from 1 Corinthians 11. We just read this passage. In the middle of it, it says, Because of this, a woman ought to have authority upon the head because of the angels. Okay? Again, the best understanding of this is probably that the veil is an expression of authority to prophesy. But translators can get all ideas about this. There's a version of the Bible called Living Letters. Some of you may even own a Bible from that translation. Here's the same exact verse in that Bible. So a woman should wear a head covering on her head as a sign that she is under a man's authority, a fact for all the angels to notice and rejoice in. I don't think that's a very good translation. <laughs> okay. All right, one more thing. Will you stay with me for two more minutes? This is super important. 
a little background for this passage is in the ancient world, every morning, remember what I said, a rabbi would pray a prayer, Blessed art thou, O God, for you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Paul himself was probably brought up saying that prayer. And then Jesus enters Paul's life, and the Holy Spirit gets poured out in his heart. And the reality of the church that is this wonderful, renewed community of people grips Paul's imagination. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes these words in Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For listen to me, you are all one in Christ Jesus. (laughs) These are some incredible words. In fact, Thomas Cahill says, This is the first expression of egalitarianism in the history of human literature. Our church believes, folks, that when you take into account the whole of Scripture, the fact that everybody was made in God's image, and the recipient of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the clear preponderance of evidence is that God's plan for the human race is for it is to be redeemed, a redeemed community, where men and women share equally in the image of God, in the gifts of the Spirit, in the ministry of the church, and in the partnership of the family of God. And I want to say to you, if you're a man in this room, You ought to thank God for and cheer on the women in your life. Encourage them to realize their full potential. You have no idea, guys, the difference you can make. If there's a relationship that is broken down, if there's an attitude in you or a problem of diminishing women in any way, whether it be mishandled sexuality or a conflict between you and a spouse or somebody at work or somebody in this church or a friend or neighbor or whoever, will you pray this morning? Will you pray, God, would you change my heart? Would you help me to begin looking at women, all women, and treat them the way that Jesus does? Women, I want to say this to you. Thank God that he made you just the way he made you. I want you to know that you are invaluable to him and you bear the image of God as much as anybody else in this world. I want to ask you this morning, if you'll ask God to help you become all that you were meant to be. Listen, not for your own sake, not for climbing a ladder, not for achieving power, but simply to be able to serve God's planet and redeemed humanity. I'm going to tell you something. When God said male and female, he created them. He couldn't have done it any better. Imagine how dull it would be if there was just one or the other. I think about my mom. And I think about my wife, Robin. I think about my sister, Deb. I think about my two daughters. And I have to tell you this. I am so grateful to be a church, a part of a church, that encourages folks to serve on the basis of giftedness and not gender. I'm so proud to be a part of a church that says to our daughters as well as our sons, you know what? You learn and you grow and you lead and you teach and you contribute and you reach your full God-given potential. I think about elders who have served in this church over the years, people like Rhonda King and Enid Glunt and Andrea Gregory and Liz Cruz, and Krista Yurchek, and Leanne Smith, and Barb Duncan. I think of incredible staff members who have led our ministries, like Carol Arnaga, and Desi Carney, and Valinda Harlan, and Teresa O'Brien, and Teresa Mercer, 
Michelle Hanna, Jordan Whelan, and Deb Aguilar, Angela Waddell. I think about the debt our congregation owes to way too many women leaders and servants to mention. And if I didn't mention it, it wasn't on purpose. I hope you're as proud of that as I am. And I'm sure we could do better and we need to do better. But I want to tell you something. There's something special about being a part of a church where everybody can lead. Let's pray. Father, in these last few moments, we're going to come to the table. Such a beautiful image. (laughs) And there was a day, God, when maybe women couldn't come to the table. They would serve and they would prepare and they would stand off to the side. But I'm so grateful (laughs) that because of Jesus and because of you, God, You have brought us fully, fully back to where we need to be. And that is where everybody can pull up a chair and they can be a part of community. Will you help us model that? And will you help us, God, um, grow in that way even more? We're nowhere near where we need to be, God. But we do want to get there. And will you today, I pray, God, bless and pour out your spirit upon the ladies of Oasis, blessing and power and strength to keep running the race. And upon men, may we see and value and lift up and cheer on these wonderful, wonderful women. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.